Oke, okay. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, terima kasih sudah teman-teman yang sudah share, yang sudah bergabung di streaming perdana kali ini. Uh, mungkin perlu disampaikan juga bahwa uh, bagikan ini merupakan inisiasi udah lama sebenarnya, udah dua tahun yang lalu. Cuman masih sifatnya offline, jadi teman-teman yang bisa gabung hanya teman-teman yang bisa hadir saat itu. Saat itu masih hanya di kantor. Nah. Saat ini saya coba untuk mengaktifkan kembali uh, uh, inisiasi tersebut. Jadi kali ini kita coba yang online. Kali ini saya punya uh, teman, uh, teman lab sebenarnya. Uh, dia uh, namanya Merin Kusa. Jadi dia... Uh, Mungkin dia akan bercerita banyak. Dia aslinya Prancis, tapi pernah juga di Kanada dan juga pernah di Australia. Nah, jadi kita panggilkan saja langsung bagaimana uh, dia bisa melanglang buana di dunia. Uh, welcome, uh, Marin. Hello, Marin. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, Enrico? Oh, nice to see you. It's very good. It's it's a good weather actually. So it has been like A weeks to see the sun full of sun it's been several months that it's been very nice but this week yeah. it's to get bad again yes that's true yeah <laughs> so so here marin kusa um she's the uh science communicator so you can check uh, his uh, youtube channel which is a lot of interesting stuff i will share all your uh Facebook link in in the comment as well. So, and she also the second year of the PhD student in Salford University, uh, working on the traceability using the genetic stuff. Um, and the interesting things, she also the wall climbing, wall climber. Holding <laughs> is very interesting. Uh, I don't even know how to to do climbing. So probably could you tell us about a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, just before, I wanted to let you know, Andika, there's a bit of a problem with the sound. I don't know if it's your microphone, but it, there's a lot of parasite sound. Um, okay. So maybe it's better if you don't use, I don't know uh, what you can do to change that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's better now, I think. Okay. So, yeah, I'm. Um, well, you did a, a pretty good introduction already, Andika. So, uh, as you said, I'm actually entering my third year as um, PhD candidate at the University of Salford, and I don't have, I don't have a background in genetics. I actually have a background in marine biology, and. For my master's, I specialized in Arctic marine biology. So I actually did all of my field work in Svalbard, which is very high north. It's basically at the same latitude as northern Greenland. And, um, and I was studying an Arctic fish species. So uh, very different than what you're doing, Andika. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, more about the ecology in, instead of genetics. 
I was doing ecology, yes. So I was actually looking at the the diet of that species. And I was also looking at the diet of species that are further south, uh, boreal species, they're called. Uh -huh. They're not exactly Arctic. They're just a little bit below the Arctic. And the reason why I was doing that is that with the climate change, yeah. there's, a lot, uh, there's a lot of the species from the south that are going north. Ah. Yeah, of course. And so they're kind of encroaching onto the habitat of the species that are living up north. And we're not sure whether or not they're going to be competitors or predators of the species that live up north. And the yep. main question that we had is that up north, really high in the Arctic, you have the polar nights. So there's 24-hour night time for yeah, yeah months and the question was can the species from the south adapt to this yeah. lack of light and can they uh -huh. still see and eat yeah no there is no light whatsoever or are the only species that can actually live in that environment yeah the light uh -huh. species yeah so it was um it will be like you affect their their ability to hunting, isn't it? So they cannot use you get used to with the darkness, yeah, with the cold as well, isn't it? So it's that, that was the that was the question, and it seems like for a lot of the species that are moving north, like Atlantic cod, it doesn't yeah. matter. They don't need, they don't need light. <laughs> they they just they still eat even though it's completely pitch black. They yeah. just. They're opportunistic feeders, so they just, um, especially if they're benthic, they just kind of feel what's at the bottom and they just eat whatever is there. And yeah. their stomach is full of crap. They Sometimes they even eat rocks. It doesn't matter. They just eat everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the light doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so it's very interesting. Like you, you said that you have been like, it is also new stuff for you to working with the genetics. It's yeah. also remind me that. I never touched the genetic before, so this is really new. It's like a nightmare, really, to work <laughs> with the genetics. Yeah. <laughs> like iPad is really like making your you're the closest friend now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um. The thing is, genetics is a little bit fancy, right? And it's yeah. it's kind of um. It's become really fashionable. Uh, even in the field of ecology, more and more and more people are using genetics um, and, you know, meta barcoding and this kind of stuff. And so in my mind, it was something that I needed to learn. It was like mm -hmm. one of these skills that I should probably acquire because I don't want to be one of these researchers in the future that sees all of this genetic work and I don't mm -hmm. understand it. Ah. So it was definitely, I think that's one of the reasons why I decided to head into genetics. Um, and also because I find it fascinating. So, but it is a hard, it's, yes. it's hard. It's, it's a hard. very steep, steep learning curve. So, yeah. so working with the, the marine stuff is already hard because it is like untouchable. And now you're getting into more untouchable yeah. things working with the genetics, isn't it? Well, that's the, the interesting thing is that um, the, you know, if you're thinking about environmental DNA, for example, right, which I don't really work with environmental DNA, but hopefully you'll have Chris on this 
podcast and, and yeah. he works with environmental DNA. Uh, but, you know, environmental DNA is one of these things where uh, organisms swim in the water, in the ocean, and they kind of shed these cells. And yeah. then these cells contain their DNA and that ends up yeah. in the water. So you can yeah. take a water sample, you can analyze that, you can look at what kind of DNA you have in there and it can mm -hmm. give you information about the species that are around. And mm -hmm. so what's, what's interesting is that, uh, as you're saying, studying the ocean is basically studying the invisible because it's- Yes, And you're using the invisible, like DNA, to study the invisible, like the DNA is gonna actually tell you what's there, but you can't see any of that. In the end, yeah. it's all just, a black computer screen with a list of species. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. true. That's, that's why I really wonder that even when I do something wrong with it, even doing something wrong with the protocols, I didn't know notice when I'm doing wrong until I got the result when when they're in the checking machine. So it's really a mystery for me, really working with yeah. the genetics. Yeah, so, yeah. So, uh. So in, the interesting thing is also that you're also working with the seafood traceability. So why the seafood traceability is very important? Because back to Indonesia, we really would like to have to get the MSC uh, certificate for our product to, mm -hmm. so we can uh, export our product to you. So what is really matter about the seafood traceability? Well, I mean, the idea with seafood traceability is that along the supply chain you're always able to trace back the origin of your product and so as a consumer after your product has gone through a whole loads of steps along the supply chain yeah. it ends up with the consumer as a consumer you want to be able to trust the uh. information about that product right you want to be able to trust that what it says on the package is really what what it is yeah. so if it says that this is an atlantic cod coming from the barents sea you want to know that it's actually an atlantic cod coming from the barents sea and the reason why that's important is because there are we know that not everything is sustainable not everything mm -hmm. that is being commercialized is sustainable right not every fisheries is sustainable um and not every fish that you find on the market is sustainable. So um, it's up to you. It's sometimes it's obviously it's up to the market as well. <laughs> it's up to you as a consumer as well to make informed choices. And if you are interested in making these informed choices, you need to make sure that you can trust the label, right? Yep. So the idea with traceability is is that in the end, it's really you're basically for me, what I'm doing is kind of like testing whether or not we can actually trust um, yeah. what's what's there, what's written there. Yeah. And so genetics is a very useful tool because you can actually check if the species on the label is actually the right species. Uh, you can, uh, you so can, that's what sometimes we call as the like um, mislabeling sort of? Yes. Uh. Yeah, yeah I've ever heard that sometimes they they in the some publication they they said in the market they found they sell a products label as the snapper, but instead of snapper they got the from the what you call um 
Dory, Dory fish. So yeah, yeah. I mean that happens. It the substitution of species is a very it's a very common phenomenon and we're not super sure exactly where it happens along the supply chain it can happen at the level of the you know the, the fishing vessels the landing the processing it can happen at the retail level restaurants um so there are many there are many nods along this supply chain where someone can either mistakenly or purposefully change the species. So if you take the example of, um, for example, you're a customer going to a restaurant and you want to eat, I don't know, bluefin tuna. Yeah. And bluefin tuna is an expensive fish. Yes. Um, and the restaurant wants to make some sort of margin on that. Yeah. Maybe if they're fraudulent, uh, they might replace the bluefin tuna with a fish that is a little bit similar, but that is not nearly as expensive, right? Maybe yellowfin tuna or something. And so as a customer, you have, I mean, it's very hard for you to tell the difference. Bluefin tuna with a fish that is a little bit similar, but that is not nearly as expensive. Right, maybe yellowfin tuna or something, and so <laughs> it's very hard for you to tell the difference. Tuna with yeah, and and some 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 people also have like what you call the sensibility of ba uh, different products of uh, seafood. So sometimes they could be itchy if they uh, eat yeah. another fish. So it's also help. Health issues on the on the mislabeling as well. So, yeah, yeah, there's health issues, uh, but I, I don't. I mean, personally, from what I know of the fisheries world, um, I think the main issue is really more kind of an environmental issue. It, it yep. really is. If there are some species, for example, that you're not allowed to fish because they're over harvested um you're not allowed to lend them and fishermen still catch them and lend them and then pass yeah. them for something else yeah. that's really a problem because um in order to understand how much we're fishing we need to be able to trust what is landed as well yeah. right? um, and if the fish are processed on board and it becomes difficult for regulators to identify yeah. what is being landed. Um, it just then it just it you don't know anymore whether or not these you know in the case of sharks, for example, whether threatened species are being fished or not. I mean, if you can't identify the parts that are landed, it becomes it can really become a problem uh, for the sustainability of these of these stocks. So. Probably we should also um, what you call greet our 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 friend that has been joined. So, so they are Seha from Cambodia. So hi Seha, and there's also Abdul Halim. So he's Malaysian. So he's watching, but he would like to go for shopping for us first. <laughs> and there's also the admin also. So he's also studying about um, using eDNA in the in the canal so he can see the the effect of the the reservoir to the migration of 
fish from the downstream to the upper stream so which is very very interesting because sometimes we really forget about our our freshwater fishes so we really, oh, really I know. <laughs> But you know, my name is Marine, so all I care about is just <laughs> And it, oh, there's the question from Afdal. So, so what we are talking about is supply chain or the product of amphibian. So we working on the the fish product, Afdal. So Marine is working on the mainly from the Europe uh, northern northern species like cod, uh, salmon. So we working uh, on the traceability. She is working on the traceability of the those products using the genetics. So we hoping that by using the genetic, it help us to to uh, to tackle all the mislabeled thing or what we call it the seafood fraud. So that's yeah. what we are thinking now. And actually, I'm doing two things, or I'm kind of investigating two things. So there's mm -hmm. the identification of species using. Yeah genetic tools is very well established it's not okay. it's not hard to do mm -hmm. um but it is a little bit more difficult to take that to the field so yes. actually be able to identify species quickly easily in the field yes. that's one of the things i'm working on and then the other thing i'm working on is can you also use genetics not to identify the species but to identify where the fish comes from yeah. is, it, yeah. is it able to do that yes um mm -hmm. so it's a lot more complicated <laughs> um it's the same kind of principle basically the more isolated your populations are from each other so if they are reproductively isolated uh, the more genetically different they're going to be from each other right mm -hmm. so if you have um some sort of of uh, pre-established library so you went into different regions and you sampled different populations and then you know which kind of genetic makeup each population has you should be able to use that to trace back some unknown sample to one of these populations. So it's a, it's a little bit like magic, really. Yeah. <laughs> so in other, in other words, you so you can, you can trace back where where the product originally come from, isn't it? Yeah, but there are some conditions. Um, and for fish, it's particularly different, difficult because fish move around a lot. Yes. There's not a lot of barriers in the ocean. You don't have, you know, huge mountains blocking the movement of species. Fish are highly mobile. A lot of them are very migratory, pelagic. Um, so it, if there is mixing between populations, it becomes really difficult and perhaps um, really impossible to use that tool. So it works well for species that are kind of distinct and reproduce in different areas and don't really uh, don't really mix. Um, it it can be even more complicated because you can have two populations that reproduce in two different areas, so they are yeah. genetically distinct, but then yeah. they all come together to feed in the same area. Ah, okay. 
right? So if your fisherman is fishing in that area, mm. you end up having two populations have two different genetic makeup. So it, ah. you have a very good understanding of the ecology of your species before mm -hmm. you can use genetics to trace mm. back the the individual to a geographical area so me like coming with re really basics principle like garbage in garbage out if you if you know nothing about the ecologies about the basic thing about your species and you would like just strike to the the fancy stuff using the genetics it's re it really doesn't mean anything isn't it it's no it's not possible at, at least at the beginning someone needs to do that work someone needs to look into the genetics and ecology yeah. parts and then use that to be able to inform you know policy makers and people who implement regulations and, and it's going to be very much a species by species basis so for some species it will work for some species it's not going to work so it's more, it's more difficult than using genetics for identifying species. Uh, using genetics for identifying species doesn't necessarily, I mean, you, it doesn't even matter if you know anything or not about the ecology. It just, it just works. <laughs> so. That's true. So, yeah, so for, and another recent list that's very also interesting. So you also joined the force that mm -hmm. helped the UK get away from the COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you, you, you end up there and how your ability that working in the genetic stuff now move step on into the COVID-19 testing test. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So they were, um, they were obviously to try and tackle this, this COVID-19 pandemic. One of the things that governments have been doing is to do more testing. And the testing they're doing actually uses qPCR, which is what both you and I are using for our research. Um, and so because that's all I've been doing for the last two years, I thought, well, I know qPCR. I mean, I don't know anything about human disease, but yeah. the method is effectively the same. Uh, okay. Yeah, and so I applied and um, I was hired. So it's a temporary job. I'm, I'm just doing that for a month, um, you know, so I'm taking a bit of a break in my PhD and then I'm going to stop in two weeks and resume my PhD. So it's, um, let me tell you, it's quite boring. <laughs> it's very boring. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It, you know, when, when you and I do genetic work when we do yeah. our research we conduct the research from beginning to end yes we do the sampling we go in the field we do the sampling we well, extract the dna isn't it? we prepare the library for sequencing we do the sequencing we do the bioinformatic analysis we do the statistical analysis mm -hmm. we do the writing of the paper we publish the paper <laughs> you know yeah. we do everything yes um so it's very uh you know it's great it's multidisciplinary. Yeah. The uh, working in a lab like a COVID-19 lab yeah. is very different because what they're trying to do in a lab like that is to get as many tests as possible yeah. um, analyzed yeah. and processed. And so 
you you know how it works you know how the industry works in order to be very productive you need yeah. to divide the tasks into small chunks and you need to have people do only one task repeatedly yeah and your samples just go from one station to the next but the people who work at these stations they yeah. stay at these stations and they do the same thing over and over and over and over again mm -hmm. right that's how the industry works yeah um and that's how we get mass production and that's how we get mass testing yes so this is how it works in the COVID 19 lab yeah. so i'm only appointed to one station and i do the same thing the same movement all day long <laughs> it's very boring <laughs> yeah it's very it's very interesting to get the insight from the it's really thing because we also very in Indonesia we also we have discussion why we doing so uh, the the testing very very long and why this is very take time to 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 from the testing to get the results so this is the wow. insight so it, it's really yeah. like a massive sample so you are only working in the one station so it's really yeah. painful it's very exhausted for for sure I think yeah so we should thanks to all the 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 worker that are working in the testing center really to to protect us as well yeah yeah there you know over the last uh, two or three weeks they've hired 300 people to work in that lab just to work in the one lab where i am so they really they really upped their game yeah but one thing is for sure, I like fish better, and uh, I will. <laughs> Lead to the next question. So Azal, uh, back to the fish question. So it's been the study of fish diversity and their genetics. So is it vary from coast to coast? Like the genetic of fish from the coast to coast is different or have diversity? Um. So are you talking about? uh species diversity or are you talking about no, population? Is it, is it like one species from right. different coasts is have different diversity in their gene that yeah. Yeah, yeah. well that's how it works yeah so from uh from one coast to another uh you can have a very different genetic makeup so if you take the example of cod i'm i'm taking a, a northern atlantic fish because that's what i study they the cod cod are all around in the north atlantic so you uh, have them on the coast of canada and the united states and you have them on the coast of europe and you have them all the way up until the arctic these are all very different populations they have drastically different genetic makeup and it's quite easy to trace them back you you can tell if a cod is from the the west atlantic or if it's from the east atlantic that's that's pretty easy to do um but as i said it's on the species by species basis uh, so is it due to the like the environmental factor that affect their genes or they have diversity on on their own gene it can be um it, it depends what kind of genes you're looking at so you might be looking at neutral genes that are not really affected by the environment and in that case it's just it's just kind of random mutations 
that happen and then they're passed on uh from parents to offspring and then they end up going they end up just being in the population mm -hmm. over generations and generations mm -hmm. and these yeah. mutations don't necessarily affect anything yeah. but um but they're unique to that population because they were passed on from parents to offspring for generations. Uh, so you have that, and then you have, uh, then you do have some mutations, of course, that also occur as a response to environmental variables, uh, or that are that are selected as um, as a response to environmental variables. So these, uh, yeah, and so these might be different from one region to the next as well. Yeah, so you so can probably also lead uh, the factor also to to that affected the species diversity, isn't it? Like the environmental factor place to place is different, so the species diversity yeah also different. Like yeah, the yeah. yeah, it doesn't have the similar species. Like I never saw so the shibas in Indonesia. Yeah. What is is the Latascal carifer, which is the the white sniper. So it's totally different. Oh, there's, we also have joined the Alex and also my my sister and also my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so this is already more than thirty minutes. So I as I I promise to you. So I don't want to better. You, butter your 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 rest uh, rest time after the working very hard in the testing center oh i'm not so, resting i'm working on my phd today oh. <laughs> yeah i work you know when i don't work in the test center i work on my phd <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's how it is so i would like to probably end up uh in this session so if you have uh, time for like all my colleagues to asking, so it's we are happy for you to post the questions. And if Marion have a chance uh, for uh, he could she could uh, reply to your 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 questions. So yeah, thank absolutely. you, Marin, and thank you for all. From uh, it's pretty much. Uh, for the first time is from around the world so i got from australia indonesia and the cambodia oh, so amazing. <laughs> probably after we can also uh, invite uh people from other the world as well like alex i i intend to to invite alex in the future so he's also the musician he's also good speaker so it's very interesting to talk with uh, him nice i will definitely tune in <laughs> okay, thank you, Marin. Uh, have you, a nice day. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you.